welcome to a series of Q&As and discussions on life after JET. My name's Aidan Law and I'm a member of JET AA New South Wales, a chapter in Sydney, Australia. This is the first part of a two-part series focusing on the theme of job searching in Japan, with an emphasis on the IT industry. I speak to two JET alumni about their experience. John Lilifer-Moling, a network engineer in Osaka, and Evan Stora, who works in e-discovery services in Tokyo. Also joining in are two JETs in their final year, Andy Scharza and Tierra Tank. We start a discussion about language ability. Is it possible to get a job with basic Japanese language skills? it's very difficult um, just because as a someone going into IT in Japan it's important to remember that just in terms of IT there's loads of Japanese people who can do what you can do so right. the main selling point you have is being able to speak both languages and being a sort of a cultural interpreter as well as a technician so if you want to do something that is more well basically you'd have to do something that's very English oriented um, so international oriented so there are some Japanese companies that will do work with that, like uh, I think Lakuten and uh, Peach Airlines down here in Osaka have mm -hmm. got English-only policies going on. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, you'd be better off going for uh, big foreign companies, and there are plenty of them. And the other thing is you probably need to move to Tokyo. That's a big one. Yeah. Um, they just don't yeah. have jobs for non-fluent Japanese people outside of Tokyo. I, I don't know what kind of what kind of IT you're looking for. I mean, some, I've always been on more the physical side, so I'm a network engineer and I was working at DC, a data center before that. You don't need to know Japanese to do that, but you need to know Japanese to talk to your customers and to the vendors who come and things like that. And if you right. can't speak Japanese, at least not well enough to do that, then you're kind of leaving that to some other member of your team and they, you know, they got a much bigger workload. That's more work for them, yeah. Yeah, and so that, that makes it harder to get a job like that. But it's not impossible. Um, I've, you just won't get a very high-level job. One, if you want to go on the physical side, which is what I can talk about here, a data center is an easy way to get a job. You won't get paid very well. Oh, it pays a little more better than Jets, but it, you just have to be physically fit, reasonably willing to learn, and you know have some basic technical knowledge. Like... I don't know if you've ever looked inside a PC or something like that. You know, you know what a motherboard is. You know what a uh, CPU is. Right. You know, you know how to mount, or you can at least learn how to mount a server in a rack. Um, you know how to put cables together, record things on Excel. That's pretty much enough to work in a DC. But it's a lot harder than, say, Jet, because you have to do night shift. Almost all the work is on the weekends. So, really? Okay. Yeah. Like when I was, I did it for three years, and. Uh, it was in a bank, and it, just in terms of, uh, this is something that will come up a lot in IT, but in change windows. The change window has to be when it's not none of the systems are in use, which for a bank would be basically midnight on Saturday. Okay. So pretty much anything you want to change, physically change, has to be on midnight, around midnight on Saturday. The rest of the week is just planning for that and uh, letting people in and out. So most of the actual work was on the weekend at night. So that's, a, that's pretty hard. You know, it's physically hard, it's uh, hard on your lifestyle, but at the same time, it does pay a bit more than Jet, and it's, a, it's an introduction into IT, both into IT in general in the whole world, but also IT in Japan, showing that, yeah, I can work here, yeah, I can work with vendors, and then it's a, a way to bring your Japanese up to the level that you might move on to something else. In terms of other, again, physically oriented stuff, like server administration or network administration, it's possible to do it 
again in Tokyo in a big company like Citigroup or uh, Bloomberg, somewhere like that. There are a lot, a lot of financial groups there, but it's a lot easier to get a job if you can speak Japanese, and uh, it's a lot easier to advance in your career if you know Japanese. Yeah, um, I actually agree with you 100%. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I actually know somebody who works in Citibank in, here in Tokyo in HR, and she complains about the IT staff not speaking Japanese and all yeah. this stuff. I, not not knowing Japanese would definitely be a big hurdle. You would still, with some knowledge, like maybe JLPT N3 or something like that, that would be a good starting point for you to get a job along with having the technical knowledge in an IT field. A lot of people that I know that don't speak Japanese very well that got jobs in Japan basically worked in the U.S. and got transferred here or otherwise uh, doing teaching. Ultimately, like a language is just a tool for you to, to apply your knowledge to people who don't speak your native language, right? So if you want to work in Japan and do a job that's not teaching English, which is your native language, you have to learn Japanese in order to apply your IT knowledge or your chemical engineering knowledge or anything like that right. to a separate group of people. And right? uh, sorry to jump in, but do you think that would also go for, say, academia? Because we know someone who just got a job in academia with an IT-related job, although part of it's teaching in university, but part of it was also IT support, and I, I don't know what his level of Japanese happens to be. That would be a little bit different. I mean, I know I know a few people that work in academia. Like, I know a guy who doesn't speak Japanese, really, who is uh, working at Tokyo University. Uh, depending on the type of program that the university wants to set up or already has, then it might be possible, absolutely. But usually a university, especially a good one, would require you to have some kind of master's degree or something like that. So if you don't have that, then it might be difficult to persuade them. It's worth looking into, absolutely. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, if it, I was thinking, um, I've heard of a couple of smaller universities, technical universities that do, it's kind of like in Europe, they do the whole degree in English. You know, you, you've heard, I've heard about that in uh, Sweden and Germany, places like that. They just do the whole course in English. Places like that. As, as someone who's teaching as well, you might be able to do that. But um, other than that, even as, an, honestly, even as an English teacher in a university, you probably want to have a certain level of Japanese. I guess that segues into one of the questions that I had, which is um, attitudes about on-the-job learning. And how, what do you think is in Japan that you'll be given the opportunity to learn as you go? I mean, would you say that that's possible in jobs in Japan? I, I definitely think so. A lot of people here do their hardest studying in high school or secondary school, and then university, they kind of just black off and enjoy it. So I think there's a, there's a different expectation from the U.S., where it's expected that you would learn a lot of stuff, maybe do an internship or something like that during university, and then be prepared to get a job. Whereas in, in Japan here, it would be more like you join a company, and then from that point on, you learn how to work at a company. They kind of mold you and, and help you learn and help you become a, a good uh, employee of that company. That's another part of that expectation is that you would work there for the rest of your life, mm. which is not necessarily the case anymore. That's changing a lot. But the, the ultimate goal for a lot of people is you know, joining a, a big company or a famous company or something like that and getting a job and just doing it and having a steady income and, and stability. Mm -hmm. And so they, they get the job and then learn how to do the job by following their senpai for six months or a year and then go from there to, you know, work their way up as, as the case is. But. If you don't mind, um, I would, I'd give that sort of a qualified agreement. Like, I would say that it works really well, that it's very true in um, 
Japanese companies, especially if you're coming in at the bottom level, like as a uh, as, for as a new graduate entrant. But I found that a lot of well, foreign companies in Japan, as and um, even Japanese companies who want who are trying to hire you as a you know mid-career change, which most of the people here would come under the subject of mid-career change because you're not 22. They do expect you to have a certain level of well, something. You don't have to be an expert in whatever, in the technology or whatever like that, or in or in language either. This ties into the Japanese thing. They don't expect you to be able to, you know, speak like a Japanese person who's been there from the beginning, but they expect you to at least, I don't know, show that you you can learn. Like, it's, they don't have to teach you from step one. They You have some knowledge of, like, of whatever it is you're doing. Like, for example, when I joined AT&T, I was not a qualified network engineer. I had done my CCNA, but so I knew a few commands on a Cisco router, but I wasn't, you know, qualified to be a full-on by myself network engineer. Yeah. But I had that basis, so it wasn't a huge amount of work for you know senpais in the company to teach me what to do. Um, so you could, if you go, if I went in there, well, no, if I tried to go in there with nothing, wouldn't have gotten in. They would have, it would just been too much work for them, so they wouldn't bother. So. You have to have something, basically. Like same with Japanese. Like when I went into AT&T, I had the uh, was still the old JLPT one, so basically the M1 now. I thought I was pretty great at Japanese, but then it turns out that I need to learn all this extra Kago and how to use it properly. You know, <laughs> how, how to write a proper email to a customer, how to you know persuade him not to be mad at me, you know, that sort of thing. And that was a lot of work. That was a whole lot of stress too. But with that, since I came in at a pretty high level, you know, it was easy enough for them to, for my senpais again, to teach me, okay, this is how you do it. They just, I just had to bring my uh, computer over to them when I wrote an email before I sent it. said, can you read through this? Tell me what's wrong. They did it and they fixed it for me. If you're going in with something, it's okay. Or if you have something to show, at least, at the very least, something to show that it's, they don't have to teach you like a student. Then I think that's probably best. So, John, can I yeah. ask you, did you find that working in that kind of Japanese workplace helped you develop mm -hmm. the Japanese skills you needed, like the Keigo and all that stuff, but you were oh, still... Yeah. When I was on a jet, I didn't get the Keigo. I mean, I listened, I sort of understood what was going on. Like, I would listen to the teachers, there was one guy in particular who would always speak really loudly on the phone in the Shokuinshitsu. <laughs> and he would always speak in this great keigo, so I kept trying to remember it. But it wasn't, it's not the same as when you're sitting in front of a computer and you have to tell a guy that, sorry, this is going to miss the schedule by two weeks. Please don't get mad at me. But it, it's a start. Like, if you know, you know what the word itadak, itadaku thing, as in beyond just, yeah. itadakimasu, beyond the saying grace in front, start of a meal, you know, or sasete monaimasu, or, uh, you know, any of that sort of thing, or shochi itashimashita, I use that a lot. It helps. But for me, the physically being on the JET program in terms of a Japanese work environment was more about getting used to being in a Japanese office as compared to an office overseas. Because if you think about the shok most shokuin, at least the one that I was in, the shokuin shits I was in, it's everybody's just kind of there. They build little walls with books, and uh, they're all just sort of in each other's business. And that's pretty much what a Japanese office is like. Yeah. Yeah. Not foreign companies, you get little cubicle walls or something like that. And what's what's the work culture like? We've heard about working on weekends from you and Thor, but in terms of keeping like a work-life balance, and you hear obviously there's there's the image of people working themselves to literally to death. Thing, but how do you find as a as a foreigner working in Japan? How how is the work culture? Since I mentioned the uh, weekend thing, I'll start off.
off on this one. First, the weekend thing, it's purely IT. In fact, it's mostly because of the data center. Uh, in, even in America, you have to work on the weekends in the data center because, like I said, change windows happen when people aren't using the machines. I think it was Tierra said she was more into programming. If you're making a physical change to a computer somebody's using or a server somebody's using, it has to be, well, when they're not using it. So beyond that, though, just in terms of regular work, like after I became a network engineer, it's not too bad. Not as bad as the horror stories say, like especially as a foreigner because you can kind of ignore it, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, some of it will go into the, um, the different types of contracts that I'd like to talk about later. But basically, there is an expectation that you'll work overtime, but at the same time, if you don't, nobody's going to really talk to you about it, as long as you're in a foreign company how you get promotions and raises and things like that? Have well, to, that? I, it's hard for me to say because I, um, I, this is going to go into that contract thing I want to talk about. I'm a hack-in, right? I'm a, a dispatcher. Or a dis, well, not exactly dispatcher. I'm a direct contract. But with direct contracts, you don't get promotions or raises. It's how you uh. negotiate your contract every year. So it might affect how you are perceived, which is a good reason to go for a foreign company because most of them don't care. They care about how well you do your job, I find. Uh, as long as you're not letting anything go, go, you're not slacking off, then it's not a big deal. But in at the same time, you know, people, mostly Japanese people, when I was working in that uh, Japanese office, there was about five other dispatched people in the same little, I don't know, island. You call it Shima, with six or seven decks, desks all stuck together. They were all the same sort of contractor thing, but they were... I mean, they stayed until 6, 7, 8 o'clock at night every night, you know, did lots of overtime, totally unpaid, because that's just what they were expected to do. And I have a couple of my coworkers do the same thing. It kind of comes down to comes down to the old jet saying, each situation is different. You know, what is your office culture like? What's your workload like? As in, when I was, I was doing program uh, project management as well, and a lot of the project, the installations for the network installation projects had to take place at night especially because it was mostly overseas projects. So with the time difference, I'd have to join in the middle of the night because that's when it's you know, noonish in somewhere in America. So you're expected to do that, but at the same time, as well, I hate to say it this way, but as a foreigner, you can kind of ignore some of the cultural things about doing it for free, right? Your contract might say you have to do it for free, but you can kick back on it and say, okay, I want at least a half day off you know, after I add up all this time, which is what I do. But yeah, that's for me from the, again, the physical engineering side. Um, yeah, basically it's the same. I mean, I work for a foreign company, and so overtime is kind of handled the way that we would be used to. My last job, I was also a Hakan, so I was working for a company, and they sent me to my my workplace. And at that time, yeah, like with with any job, I mean, I would work overtime and not necessarily get paid for it. Or I think the labor law in Japan says that if you work, uh, you get you you don't get paid overtime uh, up to 30 hours of of overtime, and then after that you would get paid the extra 30. amount. 20 hours. 20 hours per month. Oh, well, my contract is 30. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so, therefore, yeah, it depends on the contract. And, I mean, if you're going to find a job in, in Japan, it would be helpful, actually. Go ahead and look up the labor law. It's in English. So you can check that out. And I, I, know, I know people that have worked in Japanese companies that they did dozens of hours of overtime every month and didn't get paid for it. They were only allowed to report a certain amount of it or something or... They would file it, and then the HR would just refuse it, or things like that. I mean, that can happen. Just it's important to kind of be 
flexible, I guess, with how it's handled here because having the idea, like it's it's kind of the same thing. Like they tell you when you get on jet, you know, you don't take your sick leave when you're sick. You take vacation time when you're sick, and that seems silly or weird, but that's how it is. And so overtime is kind of the same. Like you might work a lot of extra hours, and even though you would expect compensation for that, you don't necessarily get it, and that's just how it is. And everybody has to put up with that. Also, amount you can negotiate the sort of overtime compensation and things depends on your leverage. If you can say, if the company wants you, someone like you to work there, and you say, well, you got to at least give me the daikyu, is what you used to say, the time off in lieu of working overtime, then if they really want you there, okay, you, could, you can probably do it. That's what I do do, just because... I'm I don't know, I'm cheap that way, but if you don't if you don't have a little bit of leverage over them or a little bit of a history there, then yeah you probably have to or in your, or if you're not willing to switch jobs, then uh, you kind of have to put up with it. So did you uh, John and Evan did you both have jobs immediately upon finishing your jet contracts? Nope, uh, I took six months to find a job. It took a long time, but I was uh, I really wanted to not go to Tokyo, basically. I, first, I wanted to stay in the Gifu, Nagoya area, and then I expanded it out to Osaka and finally found my job. But because I didn't want to go to Tokyo, it took a lot more time. So if you're willing to go up there, it's a lot easier. Okay. Yeah. To Tokyo, you mean? It took me yeah. a few months as well. Um, I, I did go to Tokyo, unfortunately. I like Osaka a lot more, and I'm jealous of John. But yeah, to Tokyo is where the jobs are, and that is something that probably you all know is, is affecting the country as a whole in general because young people are going to Tokyo and then draining the little towns of people. So, so like, I, I prefer Tokyo, but I don't have anything against Osaka. Can I just ask you, like, why you prefer Osaka to Tokyo? Because the people there are nicer um, <laughs> in general. Like, <laughs> my, my study abroad in university was in the Osaka area in Kyogo. Mm. And I just I find the people there to be more open and more kind. They're more genuine, I feel. It's to just a certain, personal preference. To a certain extent, they're a little more American, actually. They, yeah, um, does it well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay, exactly. Okay, here's the thing, though. Did you hear... Okay, this was a few years ago, so maybe this is different, but I heard there was a law passed where if you have tattoos, then employers can fire you for it or refuse to hire you. Well, yeah, um, that's not just Osaka. That's pretty much anywhere. I, honestly, there's not a lot of protections vis-a-vis -vis applying for a job. Like, in Osaka, they take it a little too far. I remember uh, Hashimoto, the former mayor here, did try and investigate uh, <clears throat> public servants about it you know, and fire people at their tattoos. That was a big uh, controversy, but it's not that unusual. For example, my sister-in-law, Korean lady, and she's told me that she's gone in for job interviews and they've straight up said, sorry, you're a woman and you're married, so you're probably going to have kids and quit, so we're not going to hire you. you know, and they just said that directly to her. And it's just, that's kind of one of my biggest fears. Yeah, it's illegal. That is actually illegal in Japan, but it's yeah, not well, like... Well, they, it's not enforced, so there's no enforcement whatsoever. Well, exactly, and even if they did enforce it, the only they can't you know, sue for compensation or something. They can make them hire that person, in which case they'll have a terrible job from hell because mm -hmm. they can't protect them at all. If they that ask is... you that question, you probably don't want to work there anyway. Exactly. <laughs> Hopefully that's not your only choice. And it's the same thing with the tattoo thing. Like, it's better if you pick the right environment to apply for. Like, if you're applying for, say, Toyota or Mitsubishi UFJ and you've got some visible tattoos, you're probably not going to get the job. Just no, not gonna yeah, mine aren't visible. They're usually covered anyway, uh, so unless they ask. Yeah. yeah. Well, even if they ask, you know, just say, 
to say I've got a couple small ones as an American, but I'm not going to close any waves or something. I don't know. I'm not going to strip off in the office. It doesn't matter. You said you were looking more programming, though, and I think programming outfits, especially the smaller groups, are going to be a lot more open to that. Like, they just don't care. They want people yeah. with skills. So I was just wondering, it might be a good time to talk about your experience, John, dealing with recruitment agents in Japan. Uh, um, I'm not an expert at that by any means, but I can I'll pass on what I know. First off, before I say that, though, I'd kind of like to talk about, the, I'm not sure if everyone knows the difference between the different types of work contracts or work styles here, like seishain, haken, gyomu itaku, keiyakushain. You know, this is a big four there, but it's pretty important. There's a big difference between all of them, right? Yep. So start out with um, seishain is straight up full-time employee, much like you'd see in America, or actually much more like what you'd see in Europe, because it's very hard to fire these people. <laughs> which means you're, you're you're quite well protected, and that's nice. You get all the benefits. For example, you, you get uh, maternity and paternity leave. You get your regular you know health care. You get at AT and T. You get some of the things like um, not not a four hundred one k, but some sort of investment matching thing, retirement pension, that sort of thing. And you've got a a job. Well, much like uh, Evan was saying, you got a job for life if you want it. But at the same time you get usually get paid a little less in IT than you would from one of the other groups just because you're being protected and also you don't have a lot of say about anything it, while you cannot be fired they can make you want to quit and you cause some waves make some trouble or fail at something okay you're off to I don't know rural Okinawa or somewhere like that good luck with enjoy the rest of your career down there so mm -hmm. you, you got good side and bad side there but most people will still try to aim for a seishain kind of job. Uh, especially most Japanese people really want a seishain. If they are offered a seishain, they'll take a lot of lower lower benefits, lower pay, all that sort of thing. Next is Haken, which is uh, what Evan was on before and what I was on before. You sign up with a company, uh, a Haken company, dispatch company, and they are the, you negotiate your contract with them. Usually you're a keokshain, which means a direct contractor with them. Or you can be a seishain with them, which is not something I recommend. But if you're a keokshain with them, they will then send you off to a different company. Like, for example, when I was at, at uh, the Citigroup data center, I was a keokshain with uh, this company called BIOS. And they hackened me over to uh, Citigroup data center. Which means, it has this, again, it has its good parts and bad parts. Like, good part is it's easy to find a job. They, they, they do the work of finding a job for you. And usually the ones who deal with foreigners will speak English, So and the contracts will be in English. That's much easier to read and understand. But at the same time, you there's somebody in the in the in between what the company is paying and what you're getting paid. You know, they take at least 20% off the top of your pay. And wow. Yeah, it's, that's the minimum. That's the minimum company-wide, and they'll try and take as much as you can, as they can. Then the other thing is, they, with that person in between, the hacking company in between, doesn't really matter how well you do at the, at the site where you're working, because they don't see it. They just hear whether or not you're doing, whether you're doing bad or good. None, none of the in between. Not if you're working super hard or you're doing a lot of projects or anything. The company, contracting company, the final site that isn't going to give you a raise because of that. And even if they do, the hacking company is not going to pass the raise on to you. Hmm. So that's not so great, but it's easy to find a job. I don't know. It's up to you. Then the other one is, uh, this is was one I learned pretty recently, Gyomu Itaku. This is more something that the customer side does. Um, they, will, they will advertise for some role, 
the hack-end company will, or Gilmi Tech company, dispatch company, will say, we can fill this. We do the contract, but it's for a job. Not, not, not a job as in somebody's job. As It's a job as in a job of work. So they say, we'll pay this, say, I don't know, 500 man per year to get this thing done. And the hacking company will say, okay, we can do that. And the hacking company will then try and put people, as many people as they need to get the job done in. But of course, they'll try and reduce have as few people as possible so they get more money. They, the big difference is that they cannot, the final contracting side cannot choose anything about the people who they're putting there. They don't get to say, this person's not cool. This person is okay. Or we want these characteristics. They're not allowed to say that at all. They just have a job. As long as the hacking company, contracting company says these guys can do it, they have to do it. Most people, if you're going into the, going the path I took, going into the physical side from pretty much nothing, you would go into hacking company, hacking or Gomitaku via a introduction agency. So, what are those agencies? The big ones that I found and worked with are <clears throat> I'm just going to list off a few names here: Skillhouse, Hayes, Robert Walters, BIOS. EN World and JAC International. There's a few others. I think, Eden, you mentioned, what was it, Morgan McKinley? Yeah, Morgan. There's, there's a lot of companies out there, and there's new ones coming up all the time. Those companies, well, they're, they're what I was talking about with the hack-end thing. You sign up with them either as a contractor or as a full-time employee, and they place you in a job. I guess I prefer to go for the contract side because even though you're not protected at all and you don't get those convenient maternal, well, in my case, paternal leave, things like that, that you don't have as many problems if something goes wrong. Like I had a um, co-worker who signed up with their parent, as a seishine with a parent company, who went through some economic problems. I don't really understand what was going on there. But they ended up ca canceling the bonuses and raises for a couple of years. And since his contract, his uh, remuneration package, was based on having a bonus every year, he got paid a whole lot less than he was expecting for two years straight there. Which, mm -hmm kind of messed him up. I mean, he was protected, so they couldn't fire him, which is nice, but he, at the same time, he got paid a whole lot less. So I, I definitely think that working for a company like that is a good start, and then once you develop your skills, uh, be it technical skills or language skills or whatever, then you can go ahead. Like, I, I'm a safe now. I think John might be as well, but I, I find that to be much more stable, which is the ultimate goal for most Japanese people, although you may not also make as much money. I mean, you if you're really looking for the money, then yeah, you might want to have a contract that's renewed every year so you can negotiate every year and stuff mm. like that. But then you have to be able to back that up with a lot of experience and skills and basically you'll have to be a consultant or something like that. Yeah. The people that I know from BIOS were not really all that great at IT to begin with or Japanese. Yeah. And so I think that's it. That's definitely a good place to start. And then you can develop the skills in an environment like that and They'll take care of you more or less. I mean, you know, you won't start at least, and then you can, you know, work on it, study hard, and and get up to where you want to be in a, a couple of years. If once you register with them, they will keep uh, sending you opportunities and things. So that's a, that's one of the good th other good things about being a hacker or kayakshain. I'm I'm still a kayakshain, by the way, in case you wondered. If you if you want to change, if you find something better, you can just jump. You know, if you're a seishain, it does look they kind of look badly upon that because. And, you know, they say, hey, you, you were a Seishain. Why You had this great thing. Why did you switch? Uh, suddenly quit. Um, if you're a KX Shine, you know, just wait till your contract's done and leave. doesn't even matter. Yeah, you're right. I was, I'll was. i back up what Evan said there about BIOS. Um, a lot of the people were starting out 
Um, they had something, either they didn't speak much Japanese or they didn't have much in the way of IT skills. But it is a good way to start. They're, they usually place you somewhere where you can do something because they want to make money. And if yeah. they place someone who's totally incompetent, then they won't make anything out of it. So that's useful. Some of them are maybe a little more of a reputation for being more high level. Robert Walters tends to aim for something for a bit more of the experienced people. But yeah, it's pretty much all that. The one thing to do is to look up, if, if you can find anything about them, find out if anybody's been complaining too much about them. Because every company has its downsides. Like The only way to protect against that is, first off, before you start, look them up. And if they're all there is available, then read the contract really well. Make sure you understand what you're getting into. Like I'll give you an example from my side. Uh, I was on a three-month rotating contract. And uh, I think my third renewal, they lowered my pay a little bit. And I was thinking, I didn't notice and didn't really notice it until my first paycheck. Because on the, co on the front page of the contract, it said the same amount. But the actual money ended up being less. And I wondered why. Wow. It's because the government had just changed the law saying that the company has to pay a bit more into the uh, healthcare thing. And they were taking that out of my pay as a benefit. Yeah, so I had to, you know, after I noticed that, I said, hey, 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 hold on, guys. If this is a law, it's not a benefit. Bring it back. But I signed the contract. I had to wait for that three or six months contract to finish up. And then I got it back. Then I got it back up there. It's It's was really annoying. It lowered my, lowered my morale a lot. But at the same time, it's my fault for not reading the contract properly. Right. So it's just like anything else. Like I don't know how much work experience everyone has um, outside of Jet, but Jet does tend to look after you a lot more than most of the com companies out there are going to. Like They're right. not there to help you out. They're there to make money off you. You're the thing that they are selling. Part 1. We'll continue a discussion in Part 2, discussing ways of finding jobs like using job sites, resume preparations, and interview experiences. Thanks and goodbye.